We believe to ride and run is freedom and empowerment. We believe riding and running solves problems and makes people happy. We even believe that if more people were physically active, the world would be a better place. We believe in physical activity because it is our passion. This is the Big Peach Ride and Run Podcast with your host, Dave Martinez. And welcome back, friends. I am your host, Dave Dolomite Martinez. And as friends, you can call me D2. And I'm so excited to have you back on on, uh, this episode. Um, Listening in, I've got a great guest, someone that I think is uh, just does so much for the Atlanta cycling community. His name is Robert Wilhite. Uh, he is an accomplished cyclist, but he wasn't always an accomplished cyclist. He, like many of us, sort of kind of jumped into it, didn't really know how to get started, and, uh, you know, remembers that as part of, uh, you know, that process of becoming a cyclist. So he does a lot for the community, especially for those that are feeling intimidated. He wants that entry into this activity to be as comfortable and as least intimidating um, for anyone. And so he, he that's one of the reasons why he has, uh, you know, a business called MyCycleCoach.com. It's for every level of cyclist. Uh, he's had very advanced cyclists learn uh, some very important skills and um and tactics to improve their cycling, but also for those that are just starting out, how to get comfortable in shifting, how to become comfortable riding in a group ride, uh, things that I'm also doing as well. And uh, he's also a, a big bike advocate, you know, has, has met with state representatives and things like that to really kind of help improve safety and, you know, just improve the accessibility and just safety on roadways and just uh, awareness. So, you know, part of the things that he's also done is, uh, you know, kind of thrown for free this, you know, the Atlanta Winter Bike League. That's still ongoing. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, so that's who we have here as a guest. And, you know, we spent a good amount of time. And so I'm not going to waste a whole lot of time with a long, uh, you know, intro. Um, but I do want to um, make sure that, you know, you, you know, if you have any questions or anything, you know, contact us at podcast at bigpeachrunningco.com, you know, you know, follow us and tag us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and just give us feedback, suggestion topics, or submit your questions. And I also want to remind you that our next live stream video podcast will be on February 23rd at 6 p.m. It's something we're doing now once a month. It's the last Wednesday of every month, and we do it on Facebook. So, you know, you know, catch us there um, because that next episode will be live uh, on the 23rd, and then um, we'll have that on the podcast the following Monday. So, like I said, we had a great conversation. It's probably one of the longest conversations we've had, but it was just so good. I just didn't feel like we needed to edit it down. So we're just going to get right into that conversation right after this break. Big Peach now sells bikes at our Brookhaven location, Big Peach Ride and Run. We help get you into the right bike that fits you and your needs. Many of us enjoy being on two wheels as much as our own two feet. It's not only a great way to stay active and fit, it's also a great way to recover from long runs and also have fun. We carry kids, commuter, mountain, gravel, road bikes, and more, no matter what you prefer. With brands like Giant, Live, a division of Giant that makes bikes exclusively for women, and Momentum, we've got whatever bike you're looking for. Stop by and check out our selection at Big Peach Ride and Run, located inside town Brookhaven, or check out our inventory at BigPeachRideAndRun.com. And welcome back to the Big Peach Ride and Run podcast. And it is my pleasure to have Robert Woolhite here. He is a f- old friend. I've met him, you know, probably about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. He was my old bike coach um, when I was doing triathlons. So welcome, Robert. How are you doing today? I'm doing awesome. Better if I was on a bike. Can we do a, bu- a podcast on a bike? 
um, <laughs> I know that there's so there's a, a runner, uh, Carrie Tolfson, and she actually does uh, a, a podcast while running. Oh, that's cool. So she has, I guess, she has someone either on a bike or someone that's running that's carrying a mics or doing something. I have no idea how she does it, but I could imagine running and trying to have a conversation because I would be out of breath. <laughs> <laughs> so we could do it on, on, you know, on a bike. Maybe we'll try that sometime. I think. The, hey, I'm game. Yeah, I think the question is is the wind noise, you know, and dealing with the audio quality with with wind noise. That's 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 the only thing that I think we'd have to look at and you know get windscreens. Um, but I know. Um, I've seen a couple of the GCN videos, and they're able to do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they, they've got someone on a moped that I guess uh, is doing the camera work because you can always hear that in the background. So um, so welcome. So, you know, you are the coach uh, or, and CEO and, and owner of MyCycleCoach.com. So, you know, obviously you have a lot of experience. You've, like I said, I've known you for about, you know, 10 years now. Um, I know that we've coached. As a matter of fact, I think, and I could be wrong, but aren't some of the images on your website some that I took yes. at Stone Mountain? Yep. Yeah, I, I recognize those. Yeah, so uh, back when I was doing some photography and doing stuff more professionally as a photographer, you were one of the ones that uh, I think I, I volunteered my efforts to to help out and, and, and uh, take some photos. That so was a fun day. It was a fun day. Yeah, and now I ride out Stone Mountain, run out there almost uh, on, on a regular basis, almost a couple times a week, so that's awesome. So I think the biggest question here is, yeah, as we kind of get started to kind of get to know you a little bit better, is how did you get started in, in cycling? What's your background? How did you become a coach or when did you start riding? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, let's see. It actually all started not long after I moved to Atlanta in 1981. I ended up connecting up with a couple of guys who were really into motorcycles and I'd always had been intrigued about motorcycles growing up and started to hang around these guys, you know, when, when you're in Rome, do as Romans do. So mm -hmm. next thing you know, I bought a motorcycle and then we started talking about, Hey, let's put together a race team. I'm like, Oh, that would be cool. So we actually started a racing team and we raced for four seasons and we took uh, the Wira association by storm a bunch of clean shaven clean cut guys in that kind of environment we kind of stood out so <laughs> we got a lot of attention uh good and bad but once we stopped racing motorcycles next thing you know it was racing jet skis and then from racing jet skis most of the guys got on bicycles and said, hey, Robert, you got to get a bicycle. I'm like, I'm not going to get a bicycle. That doesn't sound like fun. <laughs> well, basically, it was just peer pressure for about three or four years. And finally, I just gave in. I said, okay, I'm going to shut you guys up. I'm going to go get a bicycle. I had no idea. I knew nothing about nothing. So that's where I started from. And the five guys that I started riding with, one had was currently racing with Georgia Tech, racing team. Mm. One was a former pro one level continental racer. One guy had been living in Europe for the last 10 years and rode an average of 20,000 miles a year. And wow. it ain't flat over there. Right. And you had me. <laughs> so you so, were, you were definitely a fish out of water there, kind of, uh, with some very experienced individuals and kind of jumping, you know, kind of head first into, you know, cycling with some, 
very experienced and and very uh, talented and very writers. strong and very fast. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and so uh, my experience getting into cycling was I would show up for a group ride with these guys, and a half mile out of the parking lot, they're out of sight. Mm-hmm. I can't ride as fast as them. And that always was a sore spot for me. And I still, to this day, 20, almost 24 years later, why I am so super sensitive and, and aware of group rides and how they function and people getting dropped and knowing what that feels like. Mm-hmm. They want to show up for a group ride, which means they want to ride in a group. Novelty idea. Right. And I, and I mean, that same type of, uh, you know, mentality is it, it can be seen also in, in run groups. Sure. I mean, we see it. And it's one of the things that we're very conscious about as well is to make sure that individuals aren't, you know, being dropped. And it's a concern. It's why a lot of people don't show up um, at group runs because they feel that they're the slowest, you know, person out there and that they're going to be running by themselves. And it's, I think, you know, it translates as well to cycling that many exactly. people will not want to go out to a, you know, group ride because they're afraid that they'll be the slowest one and they're intimidated by by that you know being in in that type of environment especially if they're new to the sport well and my entire time as a road cyclist my passion has always been and probably always will be group rides and how can i make a difference in how group rides function so that the newbie who shows up actually has a really good riding experience, group ride experience, and not what I call an eye ride. <laughs> an eye ride is you showing up for a group ride and you just do your own thing. And hey, if everybody else keeps up, great. If not, <laughs> you're on your own ride anyway. Right. I mean, and I'll be honest. I mean, I, I am typically the one that will ride by myself for, for a couple of reasons. I think one of it is kind of not knowing what my, you know, where do I fit in, in a group ride, sure. you know, whether I'll be dropped. There's also the comfort level of riding, in, you know, in a, in a group as far as, um, riding that close together. I see a lot of these rides where people are just right behind each other, behind their wheel, you know, riding shoulder to shoulder, things that I am not comfortable doing, but at the same time, um, if I'm never in those environments, if I don't put myself in those type of environments, I will never be able to ride like that. And I think this takes us, you know, transitions us into what, you know, what I've, you know, have joined this year, something that I've wanted to do for several years. I have always had the good intention of doing it for, I'd say since you started doing it nine years ago now. Nine years. Wow. And I've said, oh yeah, I'm going to go out, but it's in the winter. It's riding, you know, typically it could be 30 degrees, you know, to about 45, maybe 50. Mm-hmm. And on a warm day, maybe get up to like 60, 65 degrees by the end of the ride. And it's the Atlanta Winter Bike League. Yep. And I have always said I want to go out, but I, I, I'm, I've sort of kind of chickened out because of the weather, primarily because I did not have the proper gear to ride in the weather. I'm typically more of a warm weather type of rider, you know. And most cyclists are. Yeah, and so I had to, this this year I said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do this. I saw that it was back on this year because it, it, we, it didn't happen last year for a variety of reasons. Oh, no, it was one reason only. COVID. Oh, COVID. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought it had something to do, because you, you, you were in an accident as well. I thought it had something to do with that as well. Uh, actually, my accident happened during uh, 
the 2019-2020 Atlanta Winter Bike League season. Okay. And we ended up just uh, discontinuing uh, the remainder of the season, which really was only two rides. Okay. So, so it just goes to show you that, you know, with COVID, you know, my years are sort of kind of blending into one time period. I can't distinguish between the two years. Um, so this year I decided I'm going to definitely go, I'm going to commit to it. And I invested in cold weather cycling gear and have been out on, uh, on every ride that so far that has been scheduled. I almost missed one because I had a race that I was going out of town for and that got canceled, but I did, uh, show up for that and I'm becoming more comfortable, uh, riding in a, you know, close to a group. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, um, and riding shoulder to shoulder and learning quite a bit. But, you know, tell us more about the Atlanta Winter Bike League. What was the genesis of that and your purpose? Once again, you know, you referenced sort of like that group ride and what has always been kind of a sore spot. And that's something that at every, the beginning of every ride, you have mentioned, um, you know, and uh, so go ahead and tell our listeners about that. Wow. For years, I heard cyclists, especially past November, from November to, let's say, March. I mean, think about Metro Atlanta. We don't have the harshest of winters. And if you do have the right cycling gear, you can feasibly ride throughout the winter. And there's a lot of riders out there who want to try that. And I heard for years riders doing that, showing up for rides that were advertised and I'm doing the, the air quotes, mm -hmm. winter pace. But in what reality was, they showed up for this group ride and it was a summer pace minus a mile an hour slower, maybe two at the most. And they get dropped right out of the parking lot, just like I was when I started cycling. And, you know, you show up for two or three or four of those rides and you have that type of experience puts a bad taste in your mouth. Yeah. And I found that cyclists got frustrated in those scenarios and they went back home and they hung up their bike and they didn't pull it back out until March, April, May. And, the, and they're starting over from scratch. Right. And, you know, that just bothered me that um, people just didn't have an environment to where they felt comfortable enough of going out and riding and again, riding in a group, hence group ride. And finally, after about three or four years, Kelly, my bride, she's like, you know what? You say this every year, the same time for the, the same four or five months. When are you going to do something about it? And finally, I said, okay, I'm going to do this. So nine years ago, it's hard to believe it's been nine years ago. But um, the WBL, Winter Bike League, the that's the official one that that most cyclists uh, are familiar about is out of Athens, Georgia, mm -hmm. and that is a hammerhead testosterone show off race team environment. Right. Uh, it's not for your recreational average everyday weekend riders. They can't keep up. Right. Yep. And. There's so there's this big disconnect. You, you've got uh, a winter riding series, number one in Athens, and number two, it catered toward 
the one to 2% of the entire cycling community. Well, what about everybody else? So I came up with the Atlanta Winter Bike League and had permission to use the WBL name from its founder. So my goal was several things. One, I, I knew that having a good endurance foundation for cyclists is, is a struggle. Number two, there's actually a lot of cyclists out there that have never ridden a century. And that's kind of like the granddaddy, grand slam, big goal of, of a cyclist when they get into riding a road bike is, wow, can I actually ride 100 miles? Wow. So also to, to incorporate uh, the right type of environment so that people can actually learn how a group ride is supposed to function in a very controlled environment. So you wrap all of those concepts together and the structure of it is it's 10 rides starting. It's always the Saturday before Thanksgiving. And then it's every other Saturday, which takes you through the end of March, total of 10 rides. The first ride starts out at an hour and 40 minutes. We don't do it by distance, and that's by design, and I'll mention that in a second. And then every ride, we add 20 minutes to the ride. So the first ride is an hour and 40 minutes. The last ride is four hours and 40 minutes. So here, you let's say you've got a brand, uh, brand new cyclist who hasn't ridden more than 20 miles on a bike, and they see that. It can be very intimidating, yes. But if they stick to all of the rides and they go through the entire season, they will be able to have built up an endurance foundation so that they can ride that four hours and 40 minutes. And then it sets them themselves up to be able to do a century. So I scheduled it with the, the official, unofficial start of the riding season every year in Metro Atlanta. Everybody kind of gauges that off of the Tony Serrano ride, which is, I believe it's now the second weekend of April every year. Mm -hmm. So that being the first real uh, century ride, I said, okay, I want to be able to have someone go through my riding series, do all 10 rides, never done a century. And if they complete my winter bike league, then I want to be able to turn around and have and deliver them to their first opportunity. So, you know, I didn't want them to be done and have this big gap from the last ride to their century opportunity. So I said, okay, I'm going to finish my series the end of March, which will give them a week to two weeks of, of, of a breather. Mm -hmm. And bam, they can go right in and do their first century ride. And I have lost count in eight years of doing this of people who have never done a century never thought that they could do a century, but they always come back and said that if they had not done uh, the Winter Bike League, they would have never been able to do that. Right. I mean, and, and that's one of those things, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to also uh, do the uh, Atlanta Winter Bike League was because typically I was that individual that I didn't start riding my bike. It would, I would hang it up for the winter. Maybe I would go out at some point if the weather was, was you know, moderate enough and go mm -hmm. mountain biking. 
you know, but road biking was always something I, I, I hung up and didn't start till maybe late March to early April when things kind of got warmer. Yeah, pretty typical. <clears throat> yeah. And, and then at, at the, you know, the goal was, okay, I want to ride, you know, metric century or a century, you know, by the fall, you know, that was typically kind of my schedule and I figured I could, I could do that. And, and I could, you know, by the end of it, I was in a good enough shape to where I could do it if I rode enough, you know, maybe even earlier than that. But what I found is that for me, I always started once again, kind of at zero at the start of of that season in March and April. Now for me, because I'm a runner, I have, you know, I'm running through the winter. It's not like I'm completely, you know, sedentary and not doing any type of cardio at all. So I have a little bit of that to, you know, that. uh, You You got a good base there. I got a good base and I could take advantage of, but year after year after year, I always finish in the fall at the same place that I finished the the previous fall. And so I don't see any really, gains in my mm-hmm. speed or my ability because my cycling is still, you know, starting at zero. Right. So I got a good base and, you know, I probably have a better base, you know, well, I would have a better base and probably end up being faster than maybe someone that hasn't done, has done absolutely nothing all year until, you know, uh, you know, March or April and they pick it up. Um, and some people would, you know, look at me and go, oh, well, you're pretty fast. And that's all relative. I was going to say relative to who? Exactly, right? Maybe based on their, you know, abilities, but maybe, but I would consider myself slow compared to those hammerheads that are going out and doing, you know, over 20 miles an hour on, a, you know, over 100 miles. Yeah, and when you start out from, from scratch all over again, whenever that is, March, April, people have to remember it takes several months to work your way back up to where you stopped. And now you're looking at May, June. So now you're right in the height of the riding season in Metro Atlanta. And when the most part, the folks who have been riding more so year round are much stronger and have got a longer base and a better ability right off of the gate. And it takes you half of this of the riding season just to get there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to be able to address that with this, with how I structured the WBL series. So that's just this ride progression of time. I, I mentioned it earlier. We don't base it by miles because here's a typical scenario or experience of a group ride. Let's say you've got uh, your A group, fast group, then you got your B, C, and D groups. Well, everybody ten, has a tendency to start off the, the fast group goes out first and then your slower ride uh, route, your slower groups uh, follow. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens is, let's say it's a 35-mile group ride. Well, the fast group is going to finish 35 miles faster than everybody else. So when they get back, there's nobody in the parking lot except them. Right. So they have their own little huddle. They converse only with themselves. And then once they're done talking, they get in their cars and they take off and they leave and next thing you know, the, the B group shows up. There's nobody in the parking lot. And the B group, they talk amongst themselves. And the same scenario happens with the B group as it does with the A group. Right. So there's no interaction. And there's a lot of intimidation by newer riders and slower riders of actually being able to step into a conversation where there's faster riders in, uh, standing around. Right. So it's like, you know what? I'm just going to eliminate that. So we're going to do it by ride time. So 
Will the fast group ride more miles in an hour and 40 minutes than a C group? Well, yeah. But the cool thing is, is seeing all of these different groups and depending on how many people that we have show up for a group ride or for the WBL, and our average is a little over 100 every ride. Um, and if the weather is halfway decent, we're going to be 150 and even, and even more. So we could have four, five, six, seven different groups. Right. But the cool thing is, is seeing all of these groups converge back to the parking lot roughly at about the same time. Yep. So now it's this huge party in the parking lot, so to speak, where you're seeing newbies interacting with guys in the A group and the B group, and they kind of feel more accepted. Yep. And, and it's not just all about how fast that you can ride, and that's the only people that you get to associate with. So I, I just didn't like that, and I didn't want it, that to be a part of the WBL. Well, and, and, and this is one of those things where when we talk about, you know, a run community, a bike community, you know, that's part of it, right? Is that association of getting in the social aspect of it and kind of mingling with other people. And it's not very, it doesn't feel like a community. No, it's not conducive for that. Yeah. If, if the fast people are long gone when you come back and it's, you know, it's one of those things we've seen typically in, even in, in most running races as well. I can well, see that. Right. I mean, in, in running races and races in general, typically, you know, those that are the fastest over a specified course, whether it's a 5K, half marathon, marathon, whatever the distance is, you know, they're going to be gone. They've picked up their medal. They've moved on, yep. you know, and they've gone, you know, they've already gotten a breakfast or whatever by the time maybe you're crossing the finish line, you know, depending on the distance. And it's it never feels really great if you're kind of finishing and there's not a lot of people still cheering for you. And that, yeah, where's and, the motivation in that? Exactly. I mean, it reminds me, there was there was a trail race several years ago. It was the, called the uh, Taurus and the Hare. And it was a ultra. It was a, a, a 50K and I think a 30K. And what they did was very similar to this with the concept of it was that everyone tries to finish sort of kind of together. So imagine a 50K, right? And you got some fast people that are probably finishing it in six hours. And you might have some slower people that might be finishing it in 10 hours. That's a four-hour gap. So what they would do is they'd say, okay, for those, you're still, everyone's still running a 50K regardless of the time. But if you're that slower person, you can start at 6 a.m. And if you're a faster person, you can sleep in. You can start out at 9 or 10 a.m. if you want. There you go. You know? There's so many easy ways to handle it. It's just people stopping and slowing down and taking a breather and looking at what is actually happening, whether it's a group of runners or whether it's a group of road cyclists or or whatever the activity is. There's always going to be levels of uh, difference of levels of ability. And I just, I'm just not motivated by these click groups. It's like you said, it's all about community. Cycling is, you know, they're my second family. And, you know, you, you can't have that, that social aspect and getting the whole dynamic of that if the only people that you get to associate and hang out with is the group that you actually rode with. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, you know, for us at Big Peach, you know, as, you know, primarily run has been kind of what we've been doing. It's something that we're very conscious about, you know, as far as people that come into our store for the first time and the environment is to not 
to reduce any type of intimidation by having a friendly and welcoming atmosphere. But when we do group runs, it's the same thing. And in, and sometime down the road, I'm sure we're going to have group rides when when we're able to do so. And uh, you know, we may have uh, the opportunity to do uh, demo bikes and and set up a group ride. And that's going to be something that we definitely want to do is make sure that it's a no drop. That regardless of your ability. You will feel welcome. You will not feel like you're slowing down the group, you know, and that's, you know, um, and that's, I think that just helps the community, just helps people want to participate in that sport more if they feel like they're welcome. And it helps grow the cycling community, helps grow the run community. And I think that's good for the sport in general. Um, and so, you know, just to kind of go back to the Atlanta Winter Bike League, I mean, it, it's, it's, being held, you, this is the first year at a new location, which I think is awesome. Oh, man, it is so cool. It is down at Lee and White, and it's um, at the, what's the name of the coffee place? Finca to Filter. Finca to Filter, and that's inside the Wild Heaven Brewery at West End, over yep. at Lee and White. So it's a, a huge I think space. It's, I think it's 1010 White Street is the official address. Okay, yep, yep. Um, and the, you know, f- first of all, there's plenty of parking. Oh, we could have, well, we've already had 240 riders at ride number two, and parking wasn't an issue. We could have had another 200 riders and still had plenty of parking. Yep. Um, So, you know, you have access to bathrooms at the beginning. Yes, indoor bathrooms. Indoor bathrooms. Not port-a-johns, but indoor bathrooms. That has always been a non-negotiable for me. There was two. One, uh, I refuse to have cyclists park on anything other than asphalt. Is walking your bike across wet grass, gravel, whatever else is just not cool. So it had to be asphalt. (laughs) And then number two, I wanted indoor bathroom access. Yep. So, and they're open early, you know, so you can get coffee beforehand. You can get coffee afterwards. Um, This last ride, you know, uh, you know, was a, was a strong ride for me, you know? Um, And I was like, man, I am hungry. I went into Wild Heaven. I had me, a, you know, ordered a stout and had one of their uh, patty melts. And that was that was just, that hit the spot after going out and riding, uh, I think almost, you know, we rode three hours. Wait, uh, your group rode three hours. <laughs> <laughs> the published time was two hours and 40 minutes. Uh, yeah, I think we, yeah, I think we, well, we did take a little bit of, we did stop at a convenience store and we lost some time there. So I think, you know, ride time total was probably under three hours, but I think it was three hour total time or something along those lines. So, um, but we pushed a good pace. We had a small group um, on that day, but that's one of the cool things about the winter bike league is the, you know, the accessibility to to good parking, to bathrooms, to, you know, coffee, um, you know, uh, food beforehand or, and after uh, if you want. So it's, you know, if you're going to be out there and you're going to be starving afterwards, you got a good place there. That's very convenient. They're very welcoming as well. I know the folks over at wild heaven, we've done uh, stuff uh, with them as well. Oh, cool. Um, so, um, so they're, they're great folks there. Yeah. And Kayla, who's one of the owners of Finca to filter, uh, they even give any one of our cyclists a, a discount. All you got to do is just let them know that you're with the Winter Bike League. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and we didn't ask for that. They just offered that up. That's that's awesome. And uh, so so that's very cool. Like I said, we've had uh, Nick with uh, Wild Heaven on our podcast before. Mm-hmm. Um, we've uh, you know worked and had an event just this past fall with them as well. And I think we're looking at. I'm teasing this. I don't have all the details. I just heard about this. We're going. I think we're going to have an event in April. 
over there, a bike event in April. So I'm teasing that. I don't have all the details yet. There's, there's still some stuff in the works, but there will be something that we will be doing there with another organization that's also on the Beltline. So, um, okay, now you've piqued my curiosity. Yeah, I <laughs> just to talk offline. <laughs> yes, I just got that email yesterday. I don't have all the details. I may have some more uh, next week. Um, um, so cool. So, um, oh, it's a great, great location. Uh, where we started out at Peter Street, uh, where the big U Hall is nine years ago, parking wasn't an issue, but now that whole stretch has been redeveloped and you can't find a parking spot. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it was time, and actually one of my ride leaders was uh, the one who sent me a text and said, hey, you might want to check out this location. So yeah. we, we took a weekend and scouted it out, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I think we just hit a grand slam. Well, so <laughs> the interesting thing is that originally the concept for Big Peach Ride and Run was supposed to be over there on that property at Lee and White. It was supposed to be... Oh, really? We were supposed to be over on the Monday night side uh, brewing, mm -hmm. sort of kind of behind where Hop City is. Yeah, yeah. And so already I had the wheels kind of turning with Atlanta Winter Bike League. And I was like, okay, when this launches... No pun intended there. Yep. When, when, when this launches, I need to reach out to Robert and see if we can swing that uh, over. So the fact that you ended up there anyway is awesome because I do think that's a Well, that's, that's a great cool. Place. I, I had no idea. Yep, yep. Um, so um, it just it, it's just one of those things that we were looking at that um, property for a while and it, you know, things just didn't work out. Then COVID hit and we just said, well, let's scale things back a little bit. Right. You know, and, uh, and you know, there's so much stuff going on there. I think that's just a great area, you know, and I'm not hope I'm not giving any other bike shops the, the idea to open up a bike shop. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, if you if you're if you guys are interested in in, in joining, you know, uh, I, I, you know, it happens every single year. You know, um, every year. Go to mycyclecoach.com. We'll have these links uh, available on our uh, uh, show notes. But uh, mycyclecoach.com and um, Robert posts that. You know, I think uh, in November typically. So if you want to come in next year. Or if you just want to come out this year, you know, and join us, you know, if you're if you're up to that distance, if you're over three, can ride over three hours, or you know, feel comfortable coming out and and giving your, uh, you know, uh, give it a try, please do come out here, um, because as Robert said, and I've witnessed this, is that, the, and it doesn't really matter what kind of bike you have either. Nope, I've had people show up on uh, cruisers, on mountain bikes, yep. uh, on hybrids. It, it doesn't matter. Yep. And that was one of the things that I was really impressed on that first uh, first ride was seeing the diversity of bikes, but also diversity of people. Yes, diversity of of of, of gender. I, Everybody, everyone. Because typically in cycling, it's pretty much a male type of sport. You know, and I saw now granted, it's not 50 50, but I've I've seen more women and I was really surprised to see at a group ride that I saw more women in attendance. You know, you know there's a reason for that. OK, what is the reason for that? As, and I've seen this as a professional cycling coach in the last 18 years. I mean, let's just face it. There's a there's there's a difference. There's a lot of differences between men and women, but women are more prone to be open to instruction and learning. Uh, a typically in the male world, and we were just talking about this before we started this podcast, is as a rider tends to get faster, and especially being a male, they're less and less open to instruction or criticism or feedback or anything. 
And it's almost like, well, why should I listen to you? You're riding right beside me, and I don't see you taking off and dropping me like a, like a bad habit. So guys in general, as they get faster on a bike, are just less open to anything. Yep. And it's, it's a, I don't know if you want to chalk it up to testosterone or whatever it is. But ego. Ego, a combination of the both, but, you know, that's just reality. Right. And, and because of that, I would say that probably 75% of my clientele in 18 years has been women. And it's sad because I can take a, a pro-level rider or a local hammerhead guy that is in the fast group and I can work with them and teach them how to ride a whole lot faster with the same effort that they're exerting. The analogy I like to use is, would you like to ride your bicycle at 20 miles per gallon or 40 miles per gallon? Mm-hmm. And I've lost count how, how many times I'm riding right beside a hammerhead rider and just seeing how he's riding his bicycle. He's riding at 20 miles per gallon. I'm at 40, but we're going the same speed. So who's the smarter one? Right. Yep. And I mean, it all comes down, especially to endurance, right? I well, mean, endurance if, is one thing, but right. it, it literally, in my tagline, in my, in my logo, it, it's, it's all about what you do on the bike. Right. Because, I mean, and, and to a certain extent, I mean, it, when you're talking about endurance ride, and this is, goes, I think, to where you're saying whether it's 40 miles a gallon, 20 miles a gallon, if you're going for, you know, whatever the distance may be, if you're riding at 40 miles to the gallon and you drain that tank, you're not going to complete that distance or you're going to have a very difficult time completing that distance that someone who's riding at, you know, I mean, at, at 20 miles per gallon versus a person riding 40 miles per gallon. Correct. So that's... And, and, and the other thing I say is, nobody's getting younger. <laughs> so I, I tell you, the average age of my clientele is probably 40, 46, 48 years old. And they all say the same thing in their own way. And that is, I'm not getting any younger. And I don't see my performance getting any better. I'm kind of plateaued out, kind of like what you referenced earlier. Right. And I, I just want to get better. And is that even a possibility? And my answer always is yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, I, th- I think there's obviously um, health benefits to it, of course. Big time. You know, I mean, there was a study I saw uh, and even reference on, the, on, the, on one of our previous podcasts where there was a study that said that, uh, you know, cyclists tend to do, uh, have, um, live longer. They have less cardiovascular um, disease issues. Um, and I think even... Um, slightly improved, improved than, than walking or running. So, uh, you know, there's definitely health benefits to it. Um, and I'm at the same point. I mean, I'm definitely not getting younger. You know, my goal is to kind of try to remain as active and as fit as possible uh, as I kind of get older. Um, I don't want to be that individual that, you know, kind of wakes up in the morning and it's like everything, you know, kind of hurts. <laughs> I can't move or whatever. So, you know, I'm, you know, I tend to go by that, you know, a, a body in motion stays in motion. And well, I've, this year I'll be the big six zero. It still blows my freaking mind. Really? Yes, I will be 60 years old. You do not look it. <laughs> I was thinking maybe, I thought I was older than you. I'm 52. I thought you were at maybe in your, you know, late 40s. That, and that, that's typically what people guess me at. But yeah, I'll be the big six zero. Wow. 
And, and yeah, I mean that right there, I mean, you're, you're, you can kill it on the bike if you want to for sure. So, you know, as we talk, you know, we've, we've talked about cycling we talked a little bit about running, but I mean, as, as someone who is a runner, I mean, their question is, well, why should I get into cycling? You know, what, what are the benefits of it? I mean, I, if, if someone's truly dedicated and call themselves a runner or that's all they do, yeah. can they see benefit of, of adding that additional sport and saying, okay, you know, I should start cycling. Why would someone want to start cycling if they're a runner? Well, the short answer is absolutely there's benefits. Uh, the, I told you I've got a story for everything. The, the one that pops in my mind immediately is, is a young gal who had been a former collegiate runner, very accomplished, but she got a job and that kind of took a lot of her time and she found herself not running very much at all for several years. And then finally said, you know what, I, I can't keep doing this. I, I'm, I'm going to make a concerted effort. Started to run again, started to compete again. And she just felt like she, kind of like what you said, just kind of plateaued. And I don't even know how she was referred to me, but she was. And she called and she said, hey, I've got a, I've got a road bike, um, but I'm a runner. And can you help me? And I'm like, absolutely. Because there's so many things that you do on a bicycle that parlays over into running. And one of the things was she just didn't have a very strong cardio level because she lost a lot of it when she stopped running. Mm -hmm. So when she started back, she, she had a lot of ground to make up. And we actually used some focus time on the bike with a much higher cadence environment to get that cardio endurance up to where she had a greater aerobic foundation before she even went into anaerobic. And after about three months, uh, that and several other things that we worked on, breathing techniques, oh, that's huge. In running, holy yep. cow. Mm -hmm. um, learned that long time ago uh, when I almost pursued a singing career. <laughs> that's another story yeah we'll have to get get you back on for that <laughs> <laughs> to sing or to talk about breathing <laughs> yes uh, that's a scary thought <laughs> uh, where's the mute button no but long story short after working with her three months she started setting consistent prs in her running and she the only thing she did different was started to cross train with a bicycle mm -hmm. and it, it was a lot of fun yeah, I mean, I think, uh, and, and you and I kind of discussed this a little bit um, before the podcast, was that, you know, running is typically, you know, requires a higher heart rate. Yes. You know, um, where cycling does not. And so to elevate that heart rate and, and to improve that cardiovascular, you have more room in, on the, to do it on the bike. Big time. And then that then translates to the run because it becomes very difficult to do it on the run, not to mention the aspect of where obviously running is a high impact type of sport where cycling is no impact. Yeah. It's like, no, it's like number two only to swimming. Yeah. As far as low impact. Uh, yeah, exactly. Except, except when you hit the asphalt. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Different, that's, Im different impact. That's a different impact altogether. Um, and that takes a different type of recovery altogether as well. But typically, cycling is a great way of kind of recovering and reducing the impact that and the load that your muscles are typically you know under 
while running and allows you to recover while still working on that cardio and building kind of that engine. So that's where I think it kind of definitely can 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 translate to running. Yeah, and if you think about with riding a bicycle, it's more of a controlled environment and you can set different parameters or levels, if you will, of how to train and and be able to fluctuate from uh, one level to another on a bicycle where as you're running, you just don't have that much room to work with mm-hmm. because your entire body is is running and it's impacting the ground. On a bicycle, you're sitting down. Right. Uh, so there's just more room to work with on a bicycle from a cardio standpoint, and absolutely that carries over into running. Yeah, yeah. I know for me, I've, I think that the times where I've had my best running performance was when I was definitely doing a lot more cycling, and that was during my triathlon uh, time period. Oh, I'll, I'll give you another great example of cross-training. An entire industry, sports industry out there, has is basically chasing after cycling. And if not every team, almost every team out there now uh, uh, has jumped into the cycling world, and that's NASCAR. Yes, I has, I did start seeing some of that, yes. When, when those teams show up to uh, the next weekend's venue, uh, those guys in the morning are riding at all, the, I mean, the pit crew, everybody, they, they all are riding as a team. They got their own team kits, and they're just they're doing circles around the track, and they're not the only team out there. Yeah. And those guys, uh, when you talk of, to those uh, those drivers and what they have seen from an endurance and capability and cardio, all of those scenarios uh, as a driver and how s- cycling has elevated that and and their their conditioning. Oh yeah, they love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it. Yeah, I, I think that's. I think we're seeing uh, definitely a growth uh, in cycling. I think with the pandemic, COVID. I mean, we saw a huge amount of people jumping on bikes. Um, you know, there was a shortage of bikes for for a while. I mean, obviously, supply chain issues you know, contributed to that. But there was when gyms shut down and people could not go to a gym to work out. We started seeing an increase of. A lot more people getting into going outside and walking, running, cycling. Um, I actually remember when everything, when our stores were shut down, but we were still taking calls, you know, and and uh, we couldn't open uh, based on you know city ordinances. Um, I took a call from someone that had just bought you know um, a bike trainer and was looking for heart rate you know strap that they had just gotten into Zwift and was kind of getting into it. And so I talked to the individual a bit. He ended up buying it, you know, I think a trainer both for him and his bi- and his wife. Um, and they were both doing Zwift. Um, I think they also ended up buying bikes as well because he was a weightlifter. He was going to the gym and just lifting weights. And when he couldn't lift, he said, okay, well, I need to do something. So he got into cycling. So I think that's good for our sport to get more people that typically wouldn't have normally gotten into um, cycling or running. Um, and, you know, if there's a silver lining to the pandemic, I think that's part of it is that we're seeing a kind of a, a rise of people, uh, you know, of, of people participating in these type of activities um, that hopefully will lead to, you know, 
healthier lives and just being more active and, and even reducing stress and, and improving quality of life. I, I couldn't agree with you more. There's the, the part that I look at is, is, yes, there was a huge influx of people buying bicycles that, that I haven't seen since I've been riding a bicycle, mm-hmm. even in the Lance days and how many people were running to, to bike shops just because of what Lance was doing as an American uh, cyclist. But during the pandemic, it was on a whole different level. Yeah. The, so I see that side of the coin. I also see the other side of the coin, and that is, okay, you've got all of these new people on a bicycle, and what's going to keep them on a bicycle? And if they go out and try to venture into a typical group ride, what I don't want them to do is having it is have continual bad experiences right. of like we talked about when we first started this podcast. And then it just kind of killed their passion or this, it may not even be a passion at that point, but just uh, the cool idea of riding a bicycle. Right. And then they're going to hang up their bikes in their garage or in it collect dust. And it's all for not. Absolutely. And I think that's where I think from where you're coming from, you're taking responsibility in, in keeping those people in this lifestyle and in this sport with the Atlanta winter bike league. And for us, you know, now that we're selling bikes and trying to, you know, do the same thing that we do for run is to keep people engaged, keep people, you know, in participating in this, uh, you know, sport, whether it's running, whether it's cycling, because it does, you know, for us, we feel as a business, it's not about selling shoes or selling bikes. It's about getting more people to run and to bike. Absolutely. That's just a means to an end. Because if you can do that, if you can get people excited about it, if you can get them to be passionate about either of those sports or both, then our business will be great. Yeah. We, we don't have to worry about, you know, anything else. If we can just get people excited mm-hmm. and support what they're doing, support their goals, support anything that they want, you know, and create a great experience both in the store and then out of the store at group rides, at group runs, at races, by providing them the information that they need, the gear that they may need, um, and an environment that's conducive to that community, then that just helps everyone. Well, I can tell you emphatically that if you guys take the same type of thought process and approach with your running as I have done with the Atlanta Winter Bike League, then your participation of people coming out to run will grow because word will get out because there'll be someone showing up who is totally intimidated and maybe the slowest person out there, but they had a great experience and you guys set them up for success in a lot of different uh, aspects during that day's run. I can guarantee you they're going to go out and share it with other friends and we all know that word of mouth is the best form of advertisement. Absolutely, yeah. And that's what's happened with the WBO. Yeah, I, ever, I, I blast out on social media quite a bit, but I always am excited every time I see a hand raised when I do the ride meeting before every ride, okay, how many people this is your first ride? Right. And, and I target those people as much as I can and ask them, hey, how did you hear about us? 
How'd you hear about? Oh, a friend. Uh, you know, I ride with this club and this guy told me about or I heard from, you know, it, it's mainly word of mouth. Yeah, Social media is great, but word of mouth is better. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because it's, you know, the thing about seeing something on social media is it's, you know, you don't necessarily will believe everything you see on social media, you know, but coming from really? someone. <laughs> or you shouldn't. Um, but, you know, to hear something from someone you know, someone you trust, someone who has had a positive experience, that carries a lot more weight, you know. And I think that's the reason why, you know, word of mouth yeah, is, it's the real is, so deal. Powerful, is more powerful than any type of paid type of advertising. So the biggest concern, I think, you know, as well as, you know, as cyclists, and I especially think as far as, you know, new cyclists, I think is safety on the roads, you know. And, and I know you've done some stuff as far as bike advocacies and had beatings and met with lots of very important people in the state and different yep. counties, you know, tell us a little bit of what you've done in the past and kind of improve that, you know, um, you know, just safety in general for cyclists. I've always seen advocacy came natural to me just because number one, I have no problem getting in front of a bunch of people and talking. I mean, that, that scares the vast majority of the general public. doesn't me. So I have, my bride will tell you, I have no problem talking. Sometimes I talk too much. <laughs> so getting out and sharing an opinion or advocating a perspective, I have no hesitation in doing. And the fact that I am beyond passionate about the sport of cycling, it's a no-brainer for, for me to do that. And over the last 20-some-odd years, I, I guess I've created a, uh, an audience uh, with my brand of mycyclecoach.com and I, I've got an audience and uh, to some degree and I really pay attention to keep my ear to the ground so uh, honestly I've always kept my ears and my eyes open for any opportunities for advocacy just because when I leave this world, I want to have made a difference. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm talking about a measurable, visible difference. And for me, it happens to be in, in cycling. And I mean, there's a, uh, some other aspects of my life that I'm very passionate about. Uh, but cycling is definitely way, way up there. Mm -hmm. So from uh, a, a, another story, <laughs> let's see. I can't remember what year it was, but... There were, I believe it was three state senators were advocating license plates for bicycles. I do recall that. Now, can, can you imagine a license plate on a bicycle? And, and tell me where that even comes close to common sense. You've got a metal plate that has edges on it that now you just open up uh, an opportunity for something that if you ever do go down, you just dramatically increases the opportunities of, of getting cut. Right. So just from a safety standpoint, that was like, seriously? Uh, there were so many different facets of it. But long story short, uh, we, we, the cycling community, were pretty outraged and there happened to be a public meeting in Gainesville, which was, this was the area that the Senator represented. And 
I don't remember how many people uh, that that room uh, capacity was, but it was standing room only. Every chair was filled, and it was several people deep standing on all three sides of this room. It was packed, and it was people from all over Metro Atlanta. I'm not talking about just coming or Gainesville or uh, areas right in the vicinity vicinity of Gainesville. It was everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I had prepared a speech, and I think I was the second person to to actually be called to talk. And I was respectful, but I didn't mince words. Mm-hmm. And I had very pointed questions. I had very pointed statements, some of which they didn't like. Yep. And it ra- really rallied everybody in the crowd as I was going through my speech. And I, I believe there was supposed to be a time limit and no one indicated to me that I had ran over my time. And finally, one of the senators said I needed to sit down. I was past my time. I asked if I could finish my speech. He said no. I respectfully agreed and sat down. And then the entire room started to chant, like in a football stadium, mm-hmm. let him speak, let him speak, let him speak. Because yep. I, had, I had hit a nerve. And the nerves that I was touching on Everybody collectively behind me was rallying behind those. And it got so out of hand that next thing I know, one of the sheriffs literally picked me up out of my chair by my arm and I was escorted out and I was told I was going to jail. First of all, what did I do wrong? Right. You know, uh, I have a right to speak publicly. Right. And when they asked me to sit down, I sat down. I didn't try to stand back up. So <laughs> I honestly thought, I, I called my bride. I'm like, uh, I don't know if I'm coming home tonight, honey. <laughs> and she's like, what are you talking about? Is when I shared with her the story. She, she just couldn't believe it. So obviously there was news reporters all throughout there just because of the activity that this topic of license plates for bicycles uh, had been grabbing attention so next thing I know, you know, they're chasing after me like crazy and everybody's wanting to talk to me and get my, uh, my sound bite or a sound bite for them. Right. And uh, they basically shut me out in a room for, uh, I'm going by memory, probably half hour, 45 minutes. I was told I was not going to, to be allowed back into the meeting. And I'm like, okay, as long as, as long as I didn't spend the night in jail, I'd be fine with that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but all of a sudden, next thing I know, uh, that same sheriff who literally lifted me out of my seat, uh, grabbed my arm and came back and said that he was going to escort me back into the room under one condition that I was not allowed to speak. Mm-hmm. And I didn't verbally agree because if there was an opportunity for me to speak, I was going to speak. That's my constitutional right. And I was, I was prepared for whatever was going to happen next, but uh, they're not going to shut me down. Anyway, so I, I came back in, and, and when I did, everybody uproared, and it was pretty cool. And they wanted, they demanded them to let me finish my speech, which didn't happen. And, but, hey, if, 
if I had to go to jail to get the point across, then it would have been worth it to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, at least at this point, there's no uh, license plate. There's on the no bikes. license. Matter of fact, after that meeting, uh, that that bill was pretty much shut down. Now, what? At what point did the? Because there is a law that still many people are not aware of, and that's the three foot passing law, right? Yep. When did that take place? Because that's I won't say that's new. But most people are probably not aware of it. It's been several years when that took an effect. So tell people what that means for those that are not cyclists or if you're cyclists that don't know about it. But definitely we're all drivers and we have all come across a cyclist on the road. Glad you brought this up because this is a two-way street. I can tell you from a cyclist standpoint, because I am one and I ride with them, we as cyclists... Uh, generally are very quick to point the finger, yell, scream at motorists when they screw up. But there's not the same level of correction and finger pointing to cyclists who do exactly the same thing that motorists do. Right. And they don't like it when I call them out. It's like, listen, you had no hesitation of jumping out at this motorist, why aren't you jumping out at that rider who just blew through the stop sign when there was cars on the other three directions that stopped? Uh, So it's like, hey, you you can't point the finger, or you can, but you got to remember there's there's three fingers and a thumb pointing right back at you. So I'm I'm pretty passionate about this. So the three-foot law went into law. It was signed into law July 2008. Great law, but the state did absolutely zero to educate anybody. And that includes law enforcement. They were clueless. Matter of fact, I think it was either a couple of weeks or it was definitely within a month after the law, it was signed into law. A very good friend of mine was hit by a city of Atlanta police officer in the police unit. And he had no clue about the law. And it was only because of this writer insisted that the supervisor be called to the scene and had a conversation with him and brought it to to even his attention. He had no clue about the law that Atlanta City Police put together at least some level of effort to educate their their police officers on the law that they should have known about. Mm-hmm. So education, uh, and it's not just the three-foot law. It's any law. I mean, think about this uh, hands-free law. Yep. Uh, they've been pushing that. There, there's more public exposure for that, but there's zero public exposure for the three-foot law. But basically, it's motorists are required by law to pass a cyclist and give them a minimum of three feet. The... The reason why cyclists get buzzed, as we call it, is because uh, I'm going to create a visual picture for you. You're in a car and you come up upon a cyclist and hopefully they're riding somewhere to the right side of the road, which is where they're supposed to be riding unless they deem that not safe. And then the law gives them the right to ride anywhere in the lane that they deem that they need to to keep a level of safety. So but just to be clear, what you would say deems unsafe could be 
gravel on the road, potholes, potholes, whatever. It could be anything. Correct. So, but but let's say that there's no debris, no hazards, and they should be riding uh, on the right side of the road. Well, here you as a motorist come up upon that cyclist, and you've got a rider on the right, and you've got a solid center line in your left. So now you've got a goalpost scenario. Mm-hmm. Well, motorists have not been educated that they can legally cross the solid yellow center line to safely pass a cyclist. Mm-hmm. And because they don't know that, they're going to what we call thread the needle. They're going to they're gonna go between that center solid line and that motorist, and there's not enough room. Right. And... Because of that, that creates that buzzing scenario. So every time I have the opportunity when a motorist does that, if, if I can catch them at a traffic light or whatever, they go into a parking lot, I'll try to take that as an opportunity to educate them. And I'll always start out by saying, hey, I can guarantee you, you don't know that there's a three-foot law because the state's done zero education. But let me just let you know that X, Y, Z. Right. Um, there are requirements that we cyclists abide by in that in that law. One, I just mentioned, you got to ride on the right side of the road. Yeah. Uh, and number two, we cannot legally ride more than two abreast. But show up to any typical group ride, and they're all over the lane. Yep. There, there's no conformity, uniformity, formation. It's there all over the place. They're taking up the entire lane. Right. By law, that's illegal. Yep. And, and I mean, and we've seen that primarily on, I would say, where I've seen it is on century rides. Oh, yeah, that's at the, the especially most Especially at the, at, the, at the start of a century ride, you will see a pack of four across, you know, easily in a, a pack, pack of maybe 50, 60 riders. Now, the only time that it is legal, if you have an event, is if they have a permit. If you have a permitted event, then based on different counties and their permitting, and there's different variances, but if you've got a permit, then in most cases that allows you to take up the entire road. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if it's a cycling event, if you got riders from the left side of the road to the right side, then that permit allows you to do that. But without a permit, which 99% of them, because my annual charity event, I don't need a permit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the reason why you will hear me prior to the ride re-emphasize this point that we're talking about right now. Right now. Two abreast, if you're three, you are illegal. Right. And you're jeopardizing our event and what we're trying to raise money for. Right. And that's one of the things that you're, you have experience at. Like I said, you have your own event, which is the Jackson Brevet, but you have also consulted and helped other, um, you know, events, you know, bike ride type events, century Quite rides. Quite a few. And so you're very familiar with permitting and putting on events and what it takes to have a successful and safe type of event for cyclists. Yes. So... Um, so let's transition to the Jackson Brevet because I definitely want to give you time for that because that is something I know that is very dear to your heart, very, uh, you know, very personal um, project and something that I know I've been at many of those rides. It's a great ride, but it's also for a very, very good cause. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure I could talk about this with a dry eye. You know, think about 
someone who is a loved one and they have health issues, you, you, there, there's nothing that you wouldn't do to help that loved one mm-hmm. if you have any kind of a heart. And I met and married my, my bride when I was 46 years old. We've been married, uh, March of this year will be 13 years. And I call her my 40-year dream because when I was six years old, I used to lay on my head in the side yard of the house that I grew up on, staring up in the sky. And as a little six-year-old boy, yeah, I dreamed about a fireman and doctor or flying airplanes, you know, the typical stuff. But shockingly, the majority of what I thought about was marriage. Mm-hmm. And it was because of the family environment that I grew up in. Um, that was something that I always thought about. So when Kelly and I finally met and, and married, I was 46 years old. So hence, she was my 40-year dream. Mm. And uh, I, I intentionally call her my bride. I've never called her the W word, and I never will. I... She just, she'll always be my bride. I, I, I don't ever want that to get old. Hmm. Uh, she sat down, uh, she sat me down on our second date and shared with me this long list of health issues, one of which was called aplastic anemia. Never heard of it. The vast majority of the general public has never heard of it. Hmm. Most of the people in the medical industry uh, has never heard of it. It's so rare. Uh, one in two million people a year are diagnosed with aplastic anemia, and basically it's when your bone marrow stops producing blood. Sounds pretty serious, because it is. Yep. And there's, there's no cure other than a bone marrow transplant. When she was 19 years old, she was diagnosed, was in the hospital for three months, they did everything they could. They said if she had something, some other kind of health issue, then they would have treatment options. There was only two, and they sent her home after three months and told her parents to make arrangements that they gave her two months to live. So the fact that she's still alive today is every day's a miracle to us. She never had a transplant, and when she sat me down and was telling me all this, uh, first of all, she was scared to death. It, I didn't know this then, but we've had conversations afterward that she was scared to death to sit me down and tell me that. She didn't know if I was going to get up and leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Um, but my response to her was, I'm not going anywhere. And after we were married, she she had a, a cycling crash uh, later on that year. And the following year, she needed surgery, and we reached out to the National Foundation of Aplastic Anemia because there's just so little known about the the disease that we didn't know how having surgery would affect uh, her issues. And it was in that conversation that we learned that the treatment that she received in 1986 was the same treatment that people would get in 2010. Wow. And that blew my mind. It's like, I can't think of a disease or illness that hasn't experienced some kind of huge improvement in treatment options. Right. 
And I, I said, I can't sit by and do nothing. I, it took 40 years to find her. And I couldn't sit by and just accept it and, and do nothing. That wasn't an option for me. Uh, all I know is cycling. So to me, matter of fact, it was Kelly. She's the one who said, well, you know, all you know is cycling. Why don't, why don't you do an event like all these other things that you could go ride? And I'm like, I can do that. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, it was me and one other person over less than three months. We put together my first year in 2010. We had over 600 riders. Yep. And our second year, we had over 1,000. Our third, third year, we had 1,300. And, you know, it just took the cycling community uh, by surprise. It was a whole new riding area that the cycling community was not aware of. Yep. And, I, and I did that for a reason. I wanted to have my own identity of an event. I didn't want to have my ride crossover uh, other ride routes. I, I wanted something unique. So that's the reason why I chose Jackson County. I don't live in Jackson County, though a lot of people think I do, <laughs> uh, just because of the event. But I live in Gwinnett County. <clears throat> so that's the reason why I chose Jackson County. And uh, the benefits of our event, we, we are super proud and we shout at the rooftops. And we want everybody to know that Every dollar that we raise from our event, 90 cents of it goes directly to clinical research. The only reason why 10 cents doesn't is because, well, we set up uh, a fund at Emory University in Kelly's name. And Emory's policy is anytime there's a fund or endowment that's set up uh, at Emory, there's just a straight 10% administrative cost off the top. Mm-hmm. And that's totally understandable. Yep. But to be able to tout that 90 cents out of every dollar that goes to Emory University goes directly to clinical research for aplastic anemia specifically, um, I challenge you to go out and search any charitable organization, especially as it relates to disease and research and learn just how much money or how little of the money that's donated to these foundations and organizations actually goes to clinical research. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, and, and I, you know, I'm happy to say that I was there at that first one and I was there for several years afterwards. I think, uh, last couple of years I haven't been able to, uh, just for other things that have come up. Um, obviously COVID had something to do with it as well. Um, but yeah, I remember being out there that, you know, first couple of years and it was a fantastic, fantastic ride, you know, always a struggle coming back. But, you know, if you're doing a century ride, you're going to struggle. Those last 10 miles are going <laughs> to, you're, you're going to struggle, you know? Um, but, uh, it's a great event. I just looked it up. I, I, I you know, I, I don't see that there's a date on for this year. So tell us, is it, is it on or what are your plans for this year? It, it is on, uh, we're waiting for the official email back from Jefferson County high school, which is the venue, mm-hmm. uh, in downtown Jefferson. Uh, we planted our sign in the ground, so to speak, or planted our stake in the ground as far as date for our event, the Jackson County Brevet. Every year, it's always the Saturday before Father's Day. 
So I, I'm going off the top of my head. I believe it's July 19th this year. June. Uh, or I mean, uh, June 19th. I think the 19th is the Saturday before Father's Day, but it's always the Saturday before Father's Day. Um, and, you know, you had mentioned about uh, helping other event organizers because of what we were able to do with the Jackson County Beret. It got a lot of people's attention. And ever since then, even 12 years later, I still get calls from event organizers, you know, trying to bounce off ideas. Uh, hey, what do you think about this? What would you do in this scenario? And also I keep my ears and eyes open to new events and cause I remember my first year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember had no clue what I was doing. My advantage was I was so ingrained in the cycling community in Metro Atlanta that I had instant support. I knew every bike shop owner. Uh, and back then there was 28 bike shops, 26 bike shops, I believe, that all fully supported me. Nowadays, their business model is not like that. You won't find a cycling event in Metro Atlanta where you've got 8, 10, 15, 20 bike shops. Number one, there's been a a lot of them that have closed. But number two, their business model is they'd rather put more of their eggs in one basket, i.e. one event, and and get all of that exposure instead of sharing the exposure at an event with other competing bike shops. And I I get that. Right. Yeah. So uh, that was my advantage was... I had just come from us, you know, being very integrated in the cycling community. So I, I had just that instant support, which was incredible. And I'm, I'm always very thankful. So I always look for opportunities to give back. There was a brand new event in Carrollton this past October, uh, the Simplify Century. Uh, met the, the Ben Wood uh, and his bride, Jennifer, they attended my Chia Climb and Descend camp in March of last year in Alabama. And he came to me afterwards and said, hey, we're thinking about doing an event. And, you know, you've talked about your event. And, you know, I, I kind of poured into those guys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll do whatever I can to help people kind of get ju- a jump start on their event. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, that's just awesome. I think that just speaks to the kind of person that you are, you know, where most people would probably be very protective about their experience, their event, and not share it. But you're all about sharing what you know, sharing your knowledge, and wanting to benefit the greater uh, cycling community through what you have learned um, and what you can contribute. And I think that's that's awesome. So for those of you that are interested, you know, uh, com. that's Jackson, B-R-E-V-E-T.com. I'll also have that link in the show notes. And uh, if you're interested, there are uh, a couple of different routes, so you don't have to ride 100 miles. You, um, if uh, everything remains the same, which it seems like it would be, there's a 25-mile route, a 45, a 66, and a 100-mile route. And it is really, you know, I think it's one of the nicer areas to ride you know um the roads typically are in in great shape awesome awesome shape people are shocked of the road conditions in jackson county yep and uh i would say it's probably was one of the 
best marked routes. You do a fantastic job marking the routes in advance on the road, being very clear and descriptive with the colors uh, and the turns. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it shows because, you know, of, of how much you care because of the level of detail that you put into these events and everything that, that you've done, including the Atlanta Winter Bike League. So... Um, for those of you that are interested, you know, uh, when that gets announced, as Robert already said, it'll be that Saturday before Father's Day. So looking at around that June 19th week. And uh, as soon as, uh, you know, Robert gives me the go ahead and says that its registration is open, I will announce it here on the podcast. Awesome. We appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, you know, definitely want to support you and what you're doing. Uh, I think, you know, what you're, it's, it's just phenomenal. It's a great event. Um, you also mentioned the Chiha, you know, climbing and descent camp. Yeah. So uh, you still have some spots open for that. Tell I've had three that. spots left. Better hurry. <laughs> so what did, what does that entail, and and who is that for? Um, it, it's in coordination or in conjunction with the Chiha Challenge, which is in May uh, every year in Jacksonville, Alabama, which is just north of Anniston. Easy drive from Atlanta. You just take uh, I-20 West over to Anniston, take a right, and go north. <laughs> it's 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 pretty easy to get there. It's you know it's all interstate. So I've known the event organizers uh, of the Chiha Challenge ever since I started the Jackson Brevet uh, and created a great relationship uh, with them. And it's a family uh, event, and I had always wanted to put on a climb descend camp and I've done it a pseudo climb and descend camp for beginners and intermediates in it up in uh, the North Georgia in the three gaps uh, several years ago. I haven't done that in quite a few years and uh, that was always uh, an awesome experience, especially from an intimidation standpoint of, you know, slower riders, not, thinking the number one, they can climb a hill. And then number mm -hmm. two, oh my gosh, I got to go down this thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, and how scary that that is. But I had the opportunity a few years ago, I'd actually been trying to facilitate this camp on behalf of Chiha for several years. And it just worked out a couple of years ago for me to be able to do that. So I stepped in. And when you hear of a camp, and let's say a climb camp, forget the descending part. Typically what you will find is you go to a weekend event and you're going to do a lot of riding. Yeah. And it's going to be, for the most part, a lot of climbing. And you would expect that. So it's basically time on your bike on hills. And there might be some pseudo instruction, but it's the intent is for you to get training miles in, I, I, I guess is a better way to explain it. Right. That's yeah. the typical experience. And I didn't want that. I want, if people were going to spend their hard earned money and take the time off to come to one of my events, then I wanted them to leave and experience real immediate results. Mm-hmm not just an opportunity or to create an environment that they can get on their bike and ride a bunch of hills. I mean, you can do that anywhere. Right. Well, unless you're in Florida <laughs> <laughs> or Arizona or somewhere else where it's flat. Uh, I think there's one hill in Florida. Out <laughs> there's like that big viaduct. In, 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 <laughs> out in Claremont. Um, no, but I, I, wanted, I wanted to be able to create an environment where people 
can actually get better and to gain confidence in not only climbing that hill, but getting over any hesitation of descending a hill. You know, there's so much focus from a cycling perspective of climbing because it takes so much effort and, and it takes endurance and nutrition and all of that. And people tend to gloss over the, or forget about the descending part because they're so focused on trying to get to the top of the hill. Right. So I wanted to tackle both because people, there's so many cyclists out there that are paranoid of going down a hill fast. I'm one of them. And that shouldn't be the case. If you know how to control your bicycle, if you know what the bicycle is going to do in any given scenario, then when it does what it's going to do, it's not going to freak you out. You don't have this big question mark when uh, a scenario happens and you just grab the brakes and hope for the best. So the climb and descend camp, I am teaching riding techniques all based on biomechanics. And the beauty about biomechanics is it creates immediate results, literally. And when we're doing these drills back and forth out on the road, for example, we'll, we'll do a particular drill and halfway up the hill, I'll say, okay, I want you to ride your way up until this, uh, let's say it's a speed limit sign on the climb. And once you hit that speed limit sign, sign then I want you to get into this specific biomechanical position. And when people do, they go from their way to my way, and then they go back to their way, back to my way, and you feel an immediate difference between the two. And I, and I have them do it that way because I want them to, f you can literally feel the difference. Right. It doesn't matter if you're a brand new cyclist or if you're a pro level cyclist or a former pro level or a hammerhead rider, you are going to experience differences like that. So that's the foundation or the structure and the premise behind my camps. Mm -hmm. And everything that you learn, you're going to get a detailed recap in an email because you're not going to be able to remember everything. It's impossible. It's information overload. But it's it's real results. So if, if you have any desire to get better on a hill or to get better on a, on descending, then and, and you want real results, then this is the camp. There's nothing else out there like it. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of sports and a lot of activities that we partake, and running is also one of those. And I think cycling is another where we buy a pair of running shoes, we buy, buy a bike, and we just go out and ride. And we feel that, at least on a bike, if we're upright, we know how to ride. Yeah, right? how hard is it? Right, how hard is it? As long as you keep pedaling, you know, and, and, you know, it's magic. You know, you use, you know, physics or whatever to keep the bike up, and as long as you keep moving, you know, you're, you're up, and so you know how to ride. But it's interesting that we don't take the time to really learn how to run properly with, with using biomechanics and better techniques. Correct. Um, and we do the same thing with cycling, yet there are individuals that will spend a fortune on a, you know, to play tennis, you know, to take tennis lessons or golf to perfect that, that swing. But we don't do that for other things that we find that are maybe recreational, you know, um, or, you know, just a pastime that, and there, there are ways to improve, you know, 
you know, our enjoyment of an activity make it easier. And if it's easier, it's more enjoyable. And I also think that when you start seeing that difference, whether it's running or cycling, that all of a sudden that makes you that much more excited and it opens up more potential of what you can possibly do. Because I do think that if, if all of a sudden something that seemed very difficult to do and if you learn how to ride properly and all of a sudden it becomes that much easier, well, then that goal of riding, you know, 100 miles over hilly terrain becomes that much more attainable. Yep. And then it's like, well, can I go faster? Can I go longer? Can I go harder using the techniques that we learn? Yeah, and you don't have to be uh, someone who is, their goal is to win their age group to go to Ironman Kona. Right. You know, you don't have to be that level of a of a rider or runner to get incredible benefit from accurate information and accurate and techniques and drills to gain a huge improvement in your performance. And what I always say with every coaching session that I do is every time, at least in my perspective, cycling, that I'm able to replace this question mark with accurate information, then people's confidence level in what in confidence in themselves right. and their abilities, you, you take the lid off. And as that grows, then your fun factor grows right along with it. Yep, absolutely. And the ultimate thing is is having fun about what you're doing. Yep. And that's one of those things. And, you know, I've, I've seen it even recently with some of these, um, you know, professional runners now that, you know, they're, they're winning and seeing gains and setting PRs and setting records because they're having fun, you know? And so if that, if a professional athlete can learn to do that, then we as average, you know, athletes, you know, because I do think that everyone who's active can, can 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 consider themselves an athlete. Absolutely. You know that you know we can if we are having fun that we get more enjoyment out of it, but we can actually get better at what we're doing, whether yep. it's running, whether it's cycling. Because I think, and for me, that's one of those things that I've I've pulled myself back from certain things, including running at times and cycling at times, because I got to a certain point where I was like. I don't know that I'm having fun. If it starts getting too competitive, if it starts me comparing myself to someone else as opposed to focusing on me, then I'm not having fun and I need to dial it back. I need to step back. And I've done a lot where now where it's like, I'm doing this for fun. I'm doing it for me. I'm not going out racing an individual. I'm not looking at someone else's time. I'm focused all on me because that's where the fun is. It's in what I can do and not in comparing myself to others. Because being around Dave is fun. I just wanted to <laughs> make sure everybody understands that. Well, thank you. I, yeah. I appreciate that. I, I, I don't know that I would agree with that, but, but thank you anyway. Um, so for those of you that are interested, whether it's a one-on-one coaching session with, with Robert or if you want to do the T-Hawk Climb Descend Camp, head on over to mycyclecoach.com as well as you know you're welcome to come out to the atlanta winter bike league which is free and that is free yes we forgot to mention that is free you know people are blown away that that event is free and and i still beat my well i don't beat myself up 
it's it's a question that's always in my head about, and I've had people even this year, this season, more so than probably any other season. Robert, you you need to charge for this. I mean, even if it's a dollar a ride, you need to start charging for this. It, it does take a lot of time. Mm-hmm. It really does to to organize this, to train ride leaders, because this is not just, y- yes, I came up with the concept, I developed it, I implemented it, I found people to help me facilitate it. And, and I tell my ride leaders all the time, it, it may be my brainchild, but it's their event because they are the ones that are helping me make this event happen because I can't do it by myself. Right. Yep. I, I mean, that's one of those things why I, I, I love you, Robert. I, and I think of you as a friend and is because of what you're willing to do for the community and you're not doing it for yourself. You're not doing it for monetary gain. You're doing it for the love of the sport. Um, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm glad we connected again, you know, uh, you know, yes, partially personally, because I wanted to go back and ride in the winter you know, secondary was because, you know, we now have a bike shop and, you know, we may grow that and having you, you know, as, as someone we can talk to, to, you know, bounce off ideas, to get your perspective and feedback as to things that we can do and improve is hugely valuable to us. Um, so, but on top of that, and you and I have already spoken about this and, you know, we're going to get, you know, someone else on there is that I'm going to volunteer to be a ride leader. You know, I'm going to yes. get trained by Robert. So I will be out on the Atlanta Winter Bike League, you know, not only as a participant, but as a ride leader to give back to the community. So if you're familiar with with me and Big Peach Running Company, you know, that's the environment and you know that we provide and that's what Robert does. So we feel that it's a good fit and a good mesh. I have availability in my schedule to ride Saturday mornings and and I don't have to be at a store to open up. That's the flexibility of my job role. So I'm going to give back to the community um, the same way that I've you know, made it a, kind of a priority for run. I'm going to do it also for ride. I, I love the ride. I love cycling. So I'm going to do that as well. We're going to get Colby, our you know, service uh, manager, sales and service manager at our Brookhaven store. He's going to be part of it as well. So we're just kind of trying to, you know, you know, get a better understanding of the cycling community, but also giving back because that's important for us. Yeah. And, and just to, for those of you who are, who might, kind of toy with the idea of, of a ride leader, especially if you're a cyclist or you get into cycling and you want to show up for the WBL and it's like, well, I'm a new rider. I, I can't be a ride leader. Sure. You can't, uh, we need ride leaders for our slower groups. Uh, just like we need ride leaders for our faster groups. So we just plug you in wherever your ability is. But the reason why, I have ride leaders is I, the, the only way that I can protect the integrity of the whole structure of this event is I have to have a bunch of little mini me's. Mm-hmm. And w- what I mean by that is whether we have four groups or 10 groups and it, like I said, it varies between the number of people and, and their riding uh, ability but I want everybody's experience, no matter what group that you ride in, to be exactly the same. Right. There's no variance. And because that creates a consistent environment, then people know what to expect before they show up. And that actually allows people to relax a little bit more 
now they're in a position mentally to where they can kind of receive a little instruction and some tips and helpful uh, direction because that's the environment I've created. And the only way that I can protect that is to have ride leaders who understand and embrace the whole concept and, and all the as individual aspects of the WBL that everybody is on board. So the only way I know how to do that is to put everybody through the exact same training. So that way, when I, when I make a statement to my ride leaders, they all interpret it exactly the same way. There's, there's, there's no difference of opinion. It's okay. We all understand and buy into that specific direction. And that's what creates that. I think that's, one of the secret sauces of the WBL because there's a lot of groups uh, out there that have pseudo ride leaders. Mm -hmm. That just basically means that's the person that leads you out and supposedly makes sure that nobody in the group gets dropped and that's kind of it. Right. Yep. yep. They just know the route, basically. They, they, they just know the route. Uh, a ride leader in the Atlanta WBL, no, you actually get to show up and do the ride. So you get the same workout that everybody else is getting. So you don't have to give up anything to be a ride leader. You're still participating in the ride, just like everybody else. You just happen to be in a leadership role and you're there to protect the integrity of the event and all of the unique aspects of the event. Right. And I mean, and that's one of the things that I've learned in the past when we talk about leader and leadership it's not about you being, and it's not, a, it's not about what, it's not your ride, it's not about what you can get out of it, but it's what you do for others. That's the purpose of leaders and leadership, is to give to others, to support others. So uh, I think that's hugely important. I'm glad, you know, that that's one of the things that you value as far as, you know, that's very important to you and your, um, you know, structure of the Atlanta Winter Bike League, and that's one of the reasons why I want to be a part of it. Oh, so, I appreciate that. Robert, thank you so much. I mean, this has been fun. I know you said previously that you've got a ton of stories, and we will have you back because <laughs> you know, I, you know. I know that recently on your blog, and I'll I'll, I'll share this. You know, also in the show notes, you made a, a post about your yellow kit because that's something that if if you ever see someone in a bright yellow head to toe jacket, helmet, shoes, everything, that's Robert. He's the one. That that's his brand. He mentioned that's his my brand, brand as far as you know, mysocoach.com you know, and the brand. That is his brand. He's well known. He's been made fun of. He's had nicknames, you know, for you know wearing that yellow. But I, you know, I'll say that you know the yellow is reminiscent to those that follow the Tour de France. You know that yellow jersey as far as that the Mayo Jorn. Yep, as far as the. Um, you know the the lead guy, the guy in the in that first position, and I would be very hesitant to to wear that color because I'm not of that ability. But Robert is, but he doesn't act like it. He is the most down earth, grounded person, willing to ride with the slowest person in the group, and um, it's just phenomenal of what he's doing here in the Atlanta cycling community. I'm so glad that we're connected again, and that we're we're going to be hopefully working a lot closer together. And I'm. Happy to have you on the podcast uh, anytime in the near future. Thank you, buddy. It's it uh, when you mentioned this to me, I was I was super excited. I mean, any opportunity we get to hang out, and you know, it's been a few years since uh, you know being involved in the uh, Atlanta 
triathlon club as a head cycling coach because that's where we met. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and and I still cherish those days, and and I just get excited like a kid in a candy store every time I run across uh, some of my old ATC family. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was super excited about uh, being a part of this and just hanging out with you. Yep. Well, it, we had some good times then, and I'm hoping that we'll have some, you know, good times in the future as well. Yep, so. The book is still being written. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you, Robert. Um, so uh, thank you so much for being here. We'll be right back after this brief message. At Big Peach Running Company, we take pride in listening to your needs. We take into account the shape of your feet, previous injuries, and activity level to guide you to comfortable shoes for your feet. Whether you're a runner, walker, fitness enthusiast, or simply need comfortable shoes to wear, we offer the best customer experience in the friendliest environment. It's no wonder we've been voted one of the best running stores in America by our fans. Visit any of our seven Big Peach Running Company locations for a free fit assessment and video gate analysis. Go to BigPeachRunningCo.com. Oh, and welcome back, man. That was such a great conversation. Um, you know, he, uh, Robert has been the first guest that I've had in my new studio. Uh, the audio quality sounded awesome. Awesome. That's one of the things I've been striving so hard to do in the production of this podcast. But uh, I want to make sure that, you know, any information that we covered, as I, as I said uh, throughout the, the episode, we're going to have that in our show notes. You can find that on BigPeachRunningCo.com under resources and then just go and uh, look for the link to uh, the podcast. So all the notes will be there. But once again, as a reminder, you know, there is the Chiha Climbing and Descent Camp on March uh, 4th through the 6th. Um, and information on that is at MyCycleCoach.com. The Jackson County Brevet, um, that's on June 18th. The registration as a, as a taping has not opened yet, so keep an eye out for that. So that supports research for aplastic anemia at the Emory School of Medicine and the Department of Hematology and Medical Oncology, and that is at jacksonbrevet.com. So it's jackson, B-R-E-V-E-T.com. And then the other thing I'd like to kind of uh, bring up and something that's come up since uh, you know, the, the taping is that, you know, the Atlanta Bicycle Coalition is having a quarterly stakeholder briefing on February 17th. So that's coming up. It's at 6.30 p.m. So you can go to atlantabike.org to learn more about what they're doing as far as, you know, improvements around the city of Atlanta and things about, you know, to improve just accessibility to uh, just public transportation, sidewalks, cycling, um, and just pedestrian type of uh, access. Um, I'll be joining, um, you know, and and kind of uh, listening into what they have to say and kind of seeing what the future, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, what they're working on for the future, but also what's in store for this year. There's some things that they're kind of have some proposals in place uh, around Atlanta Streets Alive. So I'm interested in learning more about that. So go to atlantabike.org and just click on the link to sign up and uh, be invited into that, uh, you know, that call um, on February 17th. So thanks so much. If you've you know, listened through this entire episode, really appreciate it. And once again, just drop us, you know, a line, emails at podcast at bigpeachrunningcode.com or, you know, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter for any feedback, suggestions, or uh, topics, or even uh, submitting any questions that's what we're here for is to kind of support you guys and what you're doing and uh, just trying to create the best content that we possibly can. So thanks uh, again. You know, we'll have this live uh, Facebook uh, live stream coming up 
on the, uh, now I forgot when it is, but um, on the 23rd, February 23rd. Uh, so catch us there. Um, if not, you can catch us back here through your um, podcast um, when this get, that episode gets released. And uh, so thanks. We really appreciate it. And remember, may your best miles be those just ahead. Hey, y'all, if you enjoy our podcast, let us know. If you have topic suggestions, questions, or guests you'd like to hear on the Big Peach Ride and Run podcast, email us at podcast at bigpeachrunningcoat.com. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube.